Welcome to My Hard Drive Diet, episode number 16. The show where we talk about the ins and outs, the intricacies, and uh, pretty much everything about hard drives. And uh, for us to do that, we obviously need to have a hard drive expert on the show, and we do. So let me introduce him right now, the man, Scott Moulton from MyHardDriveDiet.com. What's going on, Scott? Hey, it's good to be back. Uh, and technically, I know it said, I know because we did counters and it would be 15, and so this would be 16, but I was on one extra show. So this would actually be the 17th show I've been on. You were on one extra show? What do you mean? You uh, you had me on originally for one show before you asked me, would you like to do your own podcast? So technically, they have one other show that the listeners can go back and listen to prior to these if they can find that show. <laughs> yeah, I don't. I think it's pod. It's a Podnuts it was, episode. It's not Podnuts Daily, and it's probably. Gosh, I man, I can't even keep track of shows in present time, let alone yep. the past. Well, plus it's been but, a year um, since we might have done, done two. Did we do two? We might have done two. It's possible yeah. we did two before we started My Hard Drive Died. And yeah. now that it's been about a year or a little bit more than a year since we've done one, uh, there's been obviously a lot of changes, a lot of new stuff. And I've been traveling all over the world and teaching classes and stuff. So it's it's gotten really popular. So we have a, a lot of new material at least to talk about. Yeah, this is good. So what did you want to start off with? Well, uh, one of the first things is, is you know, for at least some of the listeners who haven't quite, quite caught up with where things are today, um, one of the new things has been SD cards and the SD cards that would be in cameras. Uh, it's been one of the new focuses that I've spent, in, spent this year uh, looking at and doing stuff. And then there's also been some new equipment like uh, the forensics uh, modules and stuff that go with the DDI, the the deep spar disk imagers that we've talked about before. So I might have to refresh you or, you know, remind you of what those things are and our listeners of what those things are in the process of doing those things. But, uh, but, you know, in addition to that, as I said earlier, we've, you know, I've also been taking the class all over the world. So I've been getting different experiences as I go to different parts of the world and teach the class of uh, Vancouver and Australia. I've been to the Netherlands to go uh, do speeches and stuff there. And, uh, I've just been making my way all the way around. Now, what would you categorize your class as? Uh, data recovery training, or what, what would you say? Like, is the why would somebody go to the class? Well, you know, the the first part is that it primarily was for data recovery. When I wrote the class and I had started with it five years ago, it was meant to be for data recovery people and data recovery companies who needed to train their own people. But it's gradually moved in a direction of more than 50% or so that have been forensics people. And now it's becoming more and more primarily forensics people because I kind of bridge that gap in between the hardware and what data recovery people do and what forensics people do. And a lot of the forensics people don't have the experience in the hardware and the equipment or even the understanding of what's happening at the lowest level of the hard drive, which is you know, the media that they use every day. And so um, I've been getting rave reviews. I've been getting all kinds of uh, different three-letter agencies, departments, DOD, DOJ, NSA, NASA. I mean, everybody pretty much has come to take this class at this part of uh, this point in time. Wow. And it's, uh, it, it, I've been going more in-depth on the forensic side for those people when I have a larger class because there's a lot more involved on the forensic side when they're dealing with damaged equipment for a forensics case and trying to go through the process of what will actually happen in the case. 
as opposed to what you do in data recovery where you're just going to give back some files and it doesn't really matter how you give them back. I see. Okay, so it's a different animal. It's now, completely. Yep. I've seen your class uh, when you came down here, and it's huge, and you bring tons of equipment, and you you come so prepared. We were talking about this before the show. Tell people how much it costs you to ship all of your equipment to Australia. <laughs> well, now, uh, the thing about going to Australia to ship my equipment is that uh, you know, the cost of the class, because the, the base of the class is about uh, uh, $3,500 per person, and so I need at least 10 people to make a class. So it's about 35000 per class for me to set it up, basically. But my shipping to get my equipment to Australia was going to be $28,000. <laughs> so crazy every time so, I do that. Yeah, it's, uh, it's, some of the places to ship to are extremely expensive, and on top of that, we, we didn't even get into customs. So you actually have to deal with customs uh, coming in and out of the country when you're bringing a lot of equipment like that. And uh, I do have trouble in some cases with Canada and a couple of other countries where I'm shipping equipment to where they want you to have a bond. And it has to be, you know, like if you're sending $100,000 worth of equipment, they want it bonded for like $40,000 to make sure that you're not going to sell it in the country and that you're actually going to get it back out. So you have a lot of difficulty dealing with customs and what's going to happen there. And then that's in addition to your problems dealing with somebody like UPS where we're going to have to ship stuff and it's $28,000. So luckily from Australia, Calas, I have a, a partner in Australia who has a facility and he ended up going ahead and buying all the equipment that we needed to do the class there because there was no way I could ship it for $28,000. And that was just one way. <laughs> that wasn't even coming back. Oh my gosh. That's amazing, man. <laughs> yeah. So it was, well, was going to be how did, terrific. How did you get your class so big, um, like so well-known this last year? I mean, it seems like you pretty much caught on fire. Well, you know, a lot of it had to do with all the podcasts I did, all the conferences that I've done over all the years. And so, you know, part of it's your fault. Uh, so so you it. were partly responsible for that. <laughs> with That's one of the reasons why we haven't been able to do a, an MHDD podcast in a year. Uh, mostly because I've been gone almost the whole year. Uh, I've uh, I've been gone well well into six or seven months of this year so far, and we're in August now. So I only had I think really like February that I didn't travel or do something. Wow, wow. So I get it. So you're using me. So business slowed down. I, I said we I got to contact Steve. It, pretty much, uh, it's like <laughs> oh look, I would like to sit in my chair. For about six months, so I'll I'll contact Steve, and then of course <laughs> Steve tells me he's selling out. He's going to be a sellout. I told him, <laughs> for anybody who doesn't know. Okay, I I, I did announce this. I'm I am selling the Pod Nuts Network. I wish I could be a sellout. I would have that would entail somebody actually buying. But um, the the whole idea, and uh, I did want to make this announcement, so it was a good segue there, Scott. Um, <laughs> The, the, the Podnuts Network is for sale because I just don't do computer repair anymore, guys. I'm, I'm pursuing a career in the music industry now, and I'm just going a completely different direction. And I want to keep Podnuts going. Or I want somebody to keep Podnuts going, and just I don't want to just let it fizzle away. So uh, what I basically did was I put Podnuts up for sale. It's open to anybody. You, if you go to flippa.com, F-L-I-P-P-A, Com. That's an auction site for websites, and I put it up there so everybody's got a fair chance to bid on it and, and check it out. Just do a search for Podnuts when you're there. There's a starting bid of 14900 bucks. It's a, it's a bargain. It's a steal. 
And uh, if anybody's interested in running this network, it is available. And of course, there'd be a huge turnover. I would tell everybody how to do it and what to do. But uh, I'm looking for somebody who has the same passion I did when I started this network because I want, to keep, I want it to keep going because it helps a lot of people and it's a fun thing to do. Um, so that's, I'm looking for somebody to do that. What do you think about that, Scott? I think it's a, I, you know, if you've lost that passion for it, I mean, I, I certainly know after doing this for so many years and doing forensics and data recovery, there are moments in time where you end up just not liking what you do anymore. And, uh, and if you've got a new passion and you're doing music and stuff, I think it's fantastic that at least instead of just killing it and saying, you know, let's finish it off, um, as some of the other people I know have done, uh, you've at least tried to come up with a method so somebody else can pick it up and carry it on. And you've already got all these links and, and sources and stuff like that where you've already gotten uh, of uh, people who are listeners. And I, I appreciate that you're at least just trying not to let it die. Uh, hopefully you'll be able to sell it. And for all these listeners who are listening to the podcast from MHGD, this, if you take over, it would be an opportunity to talk to me one-on-one. This is the hugest <laughs> selling point of the whole thing right there. Yes, you can, uh, you can you can call me up and say let's do a podcast, and uh, I'd be I'd be happy to come on the podcast and let's make it a regular thing again. Uh, other than when I'm traveling, it's uh, it's a fantastic thing. So hopefully I'm going to be here for about five more months before I start traveling again. I'm going back to Australia and I'm going to Hong Kong. I got a class in Hong Kong in December, and then I'm going straight to Australia and then hopefully New Zealand. Uh, and I'll, I do have Vancouver. Uh, I'm also doing Vancouver, Canada in uh, October, in the middle of October. So it's pretty well set up already. I just need uh, I need about another 10 students in Vancouver to make it happen. So if you want to buy uh, Podnuts, you can <laughs> ring me up, and we'll talk about every detail that you've ever wanted to know about how to deal with a hard drive. <laughs> <laughs> it's worth it. It's Let's worth keep it. it going. Yeah. Hey, um, speaking of every detail... Uh, about a hard drive. I recently bought an SSD. Um, I bought an HP laptop, 17-inch, i7. I'm like, I'm just going to make this a powerful laptop, and I want to put my first SSD in there because I never owned one. So I bought the SSD, went to put it in, found out (laughs) this computer doesn't even have a SATA cable or a hard drive caddy to install. It does have a spot for it. It just doesn't have the other hardware. So I'm waiting on that. But the whole time I was thinking of what drive to buy, I was thinking of you and... Um, there's, there's so many brands out there. I didn't know really which direction to go and the new technology. And there's this thing called a Sandforce controller and all this stuff. Do you want to just fill us in on the latest on SSDs and, and what your recommendations are and what's well, good and bad about them these days? So, and primarily when I look at things, I don't look at things quite the same way that you do. Cause you're looking at a, a brand name, you know, Patriot or OCZ or something like that, or Intel or uh, SanDisk. Um, those are all brands. Whereas there's controllers, and the controller is what makes the difference to me. When I'm looking at it, I go, okay, what controller does this have? How much cache does it have? What are they using? Are they using MLCs or SLCs on the back end to write the data? And that's how I actually am going to judge performance and look and see whether or not it's a worthy buy or not. So when you say Sandforce, which was the controller you were talking about, there there was, at least primarily in America, um, because in other countries, there, there's also other brands, and there's going to be a more proliferation of other brands from China and Japan and stuff that we don't normally see here in America very often uh, because there's just not shelf space for it, and it doesn't just happen through import-export laws. Um, the, the three biggest primary brands that there were here were going to be SanDisk, 
themselves, which is not only the brand, but they also make their controller, but they control their own market. They're like, uh, they're the manufacturer of their own equipment. Um, and then Sand Force, which is OCZs and Patriot and sometimes Kingston and some of the others use them. And then there was Intel. And Intel right. made made their own controller. And they were doing pretty well for a while with their own controller. But back around March, they decided to not to make their controller anymore and to just start using the SandForce controller. Oh. So most of the ones that are not SanDisk are now SandForce. And so those nice. are the, the division between the two. Um, and so the difference is after that, so really primarily you only really have two choices now when you're looking at the controllers. And then you're looking at what are the options that are available to me after that. Are, there, are they using uh, faster types of flash uh, where they're physically writing at a faster level like SLC versus MLC or triple bit? And all that has to do with the depth that you're writing to a single cell. The more content you write to a single cell, the longer it takes to read that content back or to write to that content. And so when you're going from what's called an SLC, so single layer, you're going to a multi-layer. When you're doing that, it takes about 40% of your speed away. But what they do to compensate for that is they have all different kinds of, of items where they can set timing and set control and set cache. So they'll use more memory, more DRAM, re regular DRAM like you would use in your computer to cache content so that it's sitting in a big chunk of cache as it's writing data to the disk so that you can improve performance of an MLC chip or a triple bit chip um, from that standpoint. So there's a lot of different tools, though, that the manufacturers have started to come out with. And it's kind of like a... You know, remember how we would hack our BIOS and we would do things to make the BIOS, you know, we would hack it so that we could, you know, change the speed of our CPU so that we could modify uh, how many cycles things were taken. And there are some tools like that now that certain vendors have either started to release or that certain users have been able to get their hands on, like MP Tools, um, which is actually a mass production tool set so that you can make your own adjustments to your SSD so really? that it would, yeah. There's a, there are some repercussions, and there are some downsides to that. Uh, so it, at least from that standpoint, depending on what you want to do, it's kind of like hacking your BIOS where you actually would possibly kill your, your processor or something. There are very similar things that happen when you're doing throttling or you're doing any of these other kind of controls where, um, just as an example, uh, we have discovered over time as we've been trying to control the speed that we read and write to a cell, that there is a period of time once you've written and erased it before you write to it again. There's a period of time that it kind of self-heals as a healing healing power. <laughs> Wizardry you know, comes into effect here. And so one of the things that has happened is if you increase the throttle time so that you're writing to that cell faster than, than the amount of time that it takes for it to heal – you can, you can control that with these tools, but when you do that, you're actually going to cause it to die twice as fast as what it normally might die. Huh. That's interesting. Now, I mean, of course, people who are using these tools and hacking their drives, or even if they're not, they, these drives are being used for different purposes. Some people are just going to look at Microsoft Word documents and emails on them. Some people are going to use them for gaming. Some people are going to use them for music, for like me, and video editing, other stuff. I mean, I guess... 
would these drives, it's not just a matter of, oh, this drive's faster than that drive. Do these drives perform differently for different tasks, and is it better to have a certain type for one task than it is for another? There, there is a difference in some of the performance uh, depending on how much cash you have and what the throttle is set to and how much spare space that you set up. There's a, there's an item that's called um, – it's, uh, it's kind of like an overlay. It's a, a user configurable over-provisioning is what it's called. And so in the over-provisioning setup, what happens is let's say you buy a 256-gig solid-state drive. Uh, you know that you want it to be extremely fast because I'm doing video editing or music editing or something, so you can control the timing that it's going to take. So you could make it so that you can actually do these things faster. But what would happen is you're, instead of having, say, a three-year lifespan, you're going to get a one-year lifespan out of it. So as the cells start to die, you're going to see performance degradation, and you're going to see all kinds of damage that's starting to happen. Uh, you'll start seeing it. It almost will seem like after a year it's starting to stutter and you start having physical problems. And I think there's probably a lot of listeners who have noticed this on, you know, older iPhones and on older, uh, you know, machines that have already had an SSD or even some of the video equipment that's out there now that's been running on SSD. The, the older it gets, the more it seems to to fragment or to kind of stutter during the process. And Interesting. so. Over-provisioning allows you to say, okay, i got a 256-gig drive. Let's divide it in half, and let's pretend that we only have 128-gig or whatever size you want to. You can, you can you could basically say, I only want to leave 50 gigs uh, unused. And by leaving a certain amount of this space unused, the device itself will use that for death of cells. cells. So as cells die, it will swap them out. And so during this process you will start having more and more cells that get marked bad, but you won't notice it as much because there is another 128 gigs that it can pull from in order to leave that space alone so that there is more. Uh, it's, it's also part of the read-write-modify-erase process. When a drive is full, it performs differently than a drive does when it's empty or half empty. So the more space that it has out there, the faster it can empty cache, write this content, change the pointers, and not have to actually rebuild all the data physically in that location when it was full. When it was full, you have to erase the content and then write it back from memory in the same, in the same pass. So it'll so, slow, slow it down. So do you recommend doing that? Setting, setting aside a certain portion of the drive for that? If you're really going to try to take one of these solid-state drives and make it fast for that purpose, then yes. But I, I, my personal recommendation is probably not to be using it for that purpose. Uh, but we are talking about equipment that most of the time, like for instance, your podcast has been going on for three, four, or five years at this point. And uh, if your equipment died every year, can you imagine the cost and the replication of going through this process to replace the stuff? My opinion is that most of us actually get just get going by that time. So if I'm doing a lot of video editing and a lot of video equipment, a year really blows by quick and faster than you would imagine. I would much rather have a robust uh, enterprise spinning disk that can keep up. Or, you know, if you want to really, you know, go with high performance and a really good quality disk, look at SAS or something along those lines. And, you know, maybe you could use the solid state drive as a boot drive or as a temp temp disk or something like that so that you're actually getting the performance increase by using that as your temp drive where the you know you're actually going to get 500 megabits of throughput as opposed to here's my full-time storage because when it dies you lose whatever you're working on it's over and so i would prefer for that to be something that was temporary that i can then rebuild from some other source rather than losing you know six hours of work or something yeah that's that's basically what i'm going to do with this machine it's going to be my boot drive 
and I'm going to have like just one terabyte drive that came with the machine. It's going to be all my data and songs and stuff are going to be stored on there. So um, that's and, the way I hear a lot of these guys are, are working it, and it's making their machines a lot faster. Yeah, it's a uh, well. One yeah. other thing I would say is that you know because if you're using a solid state drive, keep in mind that a solid state drive is it is going to die and. You don't know what day it's going to die. It's probably going to be the day that you need it the most. So at least tools like Dropbox or SugarSync are great tools for doing this. Like I keep all of my primary documents that I'm working in in a Dropbox folder, and then I sync that and have it synced to the server back at the office as well so that that content is making its way back. And because I travel a lot, and I have laptops that are all using solid-state drives at this point for the most part, uh, at least whatever changes I've made within, you know, Five minutes of being back on a Wi-Fi or something like that, those changes are then pushed back up. So if something died or I, somebody stole my laptop or, it, you know, one of them got damaged at TSA. TSA took out my laptop. They did something to it. It cracked my screen on my MacBook Air. And uh, so, of course, you know, then I'm left with a, a non-working machine where at least I can crank up another machine and there it is. Wow. I, we got to take a tangent here. What did they – What did? When they cracked your screen, did you see it happen? No, I, I didn't know at the time. They pulled the, you know, it's it's like normal, like you've got, you know, too many computers in a bag. And then when they're taking everything out to look at it, when they're over and inspecting things, I didn't even notice when it all got just shoved back into the bag. But uh, it, it did crack my MacBook Air. I didn't even notice it until I actually got to my destination and then started to use it. Dude, I would be so pissed off. Well, I have business insurance for that purpose, and they did replace okay. it in the business insurance side. But, you know, yeah, it is It is getting kind of annoying that, you know, I get raped at TSA. I mean, <laughs> I, I carry so much equipment most of the time, and, and everything I have, you know, it looks like a little bundle of C4. I mean, it's all hard drives and, you know, different types of equipment. And my deep spars, they look like, you know, plastic explosives. I, I mean, it's it's difficult to make my way through an airport without you know somebody taking me over in a side room and butt raping me <laughs> i can imagine <laughs> hey um with these ssds um since last we talked because they do die and people say they i mean it's just been happening and it used to happen more frequently i think in the past how much more reliable in the past year have they gotten are, are they getting to the point where it's just like you don't even have to worry about them dying anymore or? no no i think it's the opposite actually i think the older really? ones are more reliable. You have a much better chance of your very first version of the iPhone working than the latest rev of iPhones because really? they have why? Because uh, in the older versions of the iPhone, they were using a smaller amount of RAM. They're using a smaller amount of flash, and you're looking at SLCs. Well, SLCs, the single layers, you can write to them 100,000 times before they die into a single sector's location. Uh, on the newer ones, when they started making MLCs, MLCs can only write. 10,000 times to a single cell before it dies. So you've decreased the amount by a factor of 10 that you I can see. write to before the cell will die. And the reason is is because you have one single cell, and the single cell would contain a charge of a number of electrons. And so during the process of writing to it, you're doing something called hot electron ejection. And you're writing those by kind of burning them into the, the cell. And in order to store more data, they couldn't really increase the space. So what they decided to do was just write more electrons, and we'll just read multiple levels. So we're going to read a multi-level in the same cell and say, nice. hey, this one lived longer, uh, or this data is, is better, but it's going to live a shorter period of time. And so the more you're burning it, the more damage you're doing, the worse it's going to get. And then when you get to triple bit, so by the time we're getting to like a 64-gig chip, we're looking at 
three times the amount of data stored there in the same cell. It's going to be a big impact for speed, so you counteract that by having it with cache. But at the same time, your cell is going to die at 5,000 writes instead of 100,000 writes. So the newer it's getting, the worse it's actually getting. So you're looking at a shorter lifespan, and the faster that the drive is, the smaller amount of time there is for it to heal in between writes. So you're also killing it faster in its storage. So um, I'm starting to notice, uh, I have a 4S, an iPhone 4S. I am starting to notice what I believe to be uh, delays in the amount of write time that it has because I've constantly used it since the day I got it. I mean, I use it as storage medium and everything, and I am pretty certain that I'm starting to see an effect already from the solid-state drive in there. Uh, having having this because even reloading the system and going through the process or rewriting the ROM, you'll still end up having all of these problems again. You'll actually see them again. You'll start seeing this stuttering and staggering thing, which is what I remember seeing a lot on first-generation solid-state drives when I was working on them between 2006 and 2009. Uh, so it's it's all coming back again. But I don't think you know a lot of people are like well solid-state drives are new. And that this is the new an upcoming technology, and it's going to completely replace spinning drives. Well, I think we're looking for imminent failure. I think at some point in time, we're going to just start having these massive amounts of failure with these piece of equipment. The only thing that keeps us from doing that is this upgrade cycle that we're all in. You know, you're. I mean, how many how many phones have you replaced in the last five years? Yeah, a few, three. Yeah. yeah. Well, every time a new one comes out, and you look at it and go, "Oh, that's pretty." If you're in an upgrade cycle, you go ahead and buy it or do whatever. You think uh, so? This you think this is what the manufacturers are betting on? I definitely think that's what Apple is betting on. Uh, I mean, if you look at Apple's cycle since 2007, you know, every easily, you know, within a year to a year and a half, every single iPhone has been upgraded, and they do everything they can to push you to new technology and obsolete the old one. So, uh, and it's the same with the MacBook Airs and stuff like that. The uh, the solid state has actually changed inside the uh, MacBook Airs from the first release in 2009 uh, or 2008 to now. Uh, The way that they actually are dealing with solid state in them has changed fundamentally. But when you're looking at a device like an iPad or something like that where, you know, it's it's not necessarily a lot of write time. It's not a lot of changes that are being made to the to the system, not like the iPhone. The iPhone you're constantly using it, you're making changes all the time. Even if you were trying to do that with your iPad, you're not going to be anywhere near the category of how many times you can change your contacts, how many times you're going to be writing a document, how many emails are you going to read. Uh, and so I think the impact there is a lot greater on something like an iPhone. I see. I have an OCZ Vertex 3. That's the one I got. Yeah, it's a nice is that draft. a good one? Yeah, that's a nice draft. Yeah. It is? Mm-hmm. Woo! Thank God, I got Scott's approval on it. Thank yeah, God. no, it's a nice drive. It's fast. Uh, you should be getting if if you do it right, you should be getting upwards of 500 megabit reads and writes. So you'll be you'll be close, like 480 or 520, something in that neighborhood. Um, so I think you should be in in great shape. Good, I'm psyched. I just got to wait for that part to come in. Yep. Um, well, cool. It's good to be um, updated on solid state. It's, it's probably a lot of people. It's on their minds, and because that's all they're seeing these days. So, um, so, so do you think that this is the last thing on SSDs? Do you think that SSD technology is going to fail, and they're going to try something else? But or you think spinning spinning drives can't just continue on to the future? I mean, we got to go towards non-moving parts, right? You think this 
SSD technology is going to advance or change drastically and go in a different direction for hard drives? Uh, yeah, I think it's going to completely change and it's going to go in a completely different direction. So so here's what I know about the future, at least as far as the way things are going. Uh, first thing, as far as hard drives go, um, so there's only three hard drive manufacturers left in the world. All Everyone else is gone. So everybody else has been bought. So within the last year, year and a half, <clears throat> all of the others. So in other words, Toshiba bought out uh, what was left of Fujitsu, uh, Western Digital um, bought Hitachi. So now you'll start seeing Hitachi drives with a, it'll actually be a Western Digital label on it, but it'll say HTS or something like that on it. It'll be on a Hitachi drive. And then uh, Samsung got bought by Seagate. So all in the last year. So all of that's done. So all that's left is Seagate, Western Digital, and Toshiba. No one else is a player in the field anymore. And Seagate is, and they hired some engineers back in 2010 uh, for a patent that they had created back in 2006 called Hammer, uh, H-A-M-R. And it's called Heat-Assisted Magnetic Recording. And the theory here is, is that we can't, we're going to get to a spot here where we're not going to be able to increase the density of the drives any more than we already have. So we're at four terabyte now, and that's going to probably be, you know, maybe we'll get lucky if under the current conditions with more disks or whatever else that we can get higher than that. But the idea is if you heat up the area that you want to change the data under, that heated, you'll be able to have a much smaller uh a much higher density, a much smaller area that you're changing. So you'll be able to store more data in a smaller area because it has been heated in the process of doing this. So they really? have, yeah, they have, uh, they have some engineers working on the idea that they're going to put a little tiny laser beam on the end of your hard drive head on the actuator arm, and it's going to zap the location that you're about to change just before you want to write to it. So it'll actually zap the area of the drive in the process of using a laser to zap that location on the drive, it will cause it to uh, evaporate some of the lubrication and stuff that's on the platter. So they have another technology where they're going to try to respray lubrication <laughs> back on your platter in certain. Pa- I'm not kidding. This is actually a real patent. You go look it up. There's a. There's actually. Some, they've hired engineers to work on it, and this is their theory. And I don't know what it's going to be like for me to repair one of these. I'm a little scared of it from that standpoint because it's already a lot of work to get ahead aligned uh, without this type of technology. But they say that the lubrication will last a lifetime of the drive. So I don't know what that means exactly because right now the lifetime of most drives is like 90 days. Um, <laughs> so, so, so they're going to keep doing spinning then. They're they're going to go ahead and this now understand Seagate's been trying to sell their company. They've tried a couple of times to sell their company. Uh, I, I think you know it's kind of this impending problem. Like, what are we going to do in the future? We still don't have the massive sizes or the robustness in a solid state drive that we have in a physical spinning disk. So when you're looking at a four terabyte or you're looking at a SAS or a, you know even some high end SATA drives, uh, you don't have the the longevity in the drives lasting for a really long time, or the amount of space that you're used to dealing with for a cost per megabyte kind of thing. So mm-hmm. the theory would be, obviously, as we get higher and higher in uh, solid-state drives, that the cost will drop, and eventually they'll you know, kind of be a wash. For laptops, it is kind of a wash, because you know most people are fine with 256 gigs in a laptop. I mean, that's we're, we're pretty happy about that. We don't need six terabytes. We need right. that in an external drive, which we're all still going to carry in our in our purse or pocket or man bag or whatever we're going to carry anyway. 
um, for all of our pirated movies and all the other <laughs> other, <laughs> other uh, you know podcasts that we're carrying around. Um, but you know, ultimately, we're happier in portability for non-moving parts. But in it's not it's not pertinent for our backup drives and our and our desktops to have that. Uh, even the theory of it being faster once the machine's booted, really technically, there's not a lot going on. Unless you're trying to do something like video editing or editing music or something. So there's not a lot of changes happening to files. So I still feel like uh, it's going to be great for the portable market. I really don't think it's going to take over desktop market really for quite a while. And so it's okay that Seagate's working on new technology and that Western Digital's still going to be around. Uh, Toshiba's still going to be doing what they do. Uh, but I think... And the, the guy who invented the head on the hard drive, his name's Stuart Parkins. He works for – he was in a division of IBM, Palo Alto Research Center. Um, Stuart, who invented this head, tells us that it is unreliable. He says that his own hard drive is unreliable, and he has been working for a decade now on a new type of technology based on something called domain walls. And it's – domain walls is – uh, a physics theory based on how you're going to store data in a solid piece of metal. And he has apparently got a working prototype. He has this whole thing worked out in some fashion. However, he's not quite far enough along to release it at this point. Uh, there's still some more testing and there's still some engineering. But fundamentally, a solid piece of metal will have a very fine thread in it. And you will be able to store an atom in on this thread in a certain location so that you can read them as bits or bytes uh, as they move along this wire. So is I that that racetrack memory that we talked about before? Yeah, that is actually uh, the marketing name for, for his technology is called racetrack memory. So if people want to go look it up and kind of see where he's going, he's done some videos recently. He did something in Sydney, Australia last year. There's been a couple of things that he's done, and that's probably potentially a great direction. Plus, IBM's behind it, and as most of you probably know, doing PC stuff or even Macs at this point, we owe a lot of our resources and a lot of our technology has come from IBM, and it's you know royalty-driven from that perspective, and IBM makes a lot of money based on selling technology and going down that path. So. You know, a lot of the hard drive technology over the years, I mean, Seagate actually was originally uh, the guy, Alan Shugart, who started Seagate, worked for IBM back in the days of floppies. Uh, so at some point in time, everything we've got has pretty much come from IBM. And then there's been, you know, new creations that have come along the way. But I expect it to kind of start all over again with IBM and this technology again. Uh, where they're actually going to store data. I don't think that using Flash, using NAND, what we're currently using for Flash, is going to last. I don't see how it can. It's the end of the lifespan, not the beginning. This, The technology for NAND has existed since 1984. So this is not new technology. We're just using it in a new way that we did not use it before. Right. And so it's a it, it will be a failure. Interesting. That's very interesting. And I, that's... I'm curious to see now the future of racetrack memory. It sounds pretty cool. Or any other kind of technology that's going to be more about storing data yeah. in a solid piece. Because I agree with you. It's got to be non-moving parts. Everybody agrees, you know, with the exception of servers and workstations where there's, they're not mobile, I agree everything else has got to go to non-moving parts. Yeah. Very cool, man. Thank you for the info. Yeah, anytime. Um, what else did you want to cover, Scott? Anything else well, you got going on? 
Yeah, uh, and this is still kind of along the way, the lines of solid state because uh, you know SDXC cards is the next thing I want to cover, and that's okay. Um, most people are familiar with SDHC cards because that's what we've been using in our cameras. You know, it's basically the standard SD card that everybody's been using in their cameras or in an Android, a tablet, or, you know, in their phone or whatever they can. You know, obviously iPhones don't allow you to exchange memory, but most of the other phones do have some sort of a memory stick technology that you can put in them. Uh, And so this was really something I discovered primarily when I went to Australia back in uh, March. I was in Australia for a month. And I, I saw some things there that we just had not really been getting in America at this point, and I I could see that this was going to be the future, primarily because I was teaching forensics for all this time. You know, back when uh, um, let me kind of describe what happens here first, and then kind of draw a conclusion from that. Um, an SDXC card is a high density card. It's a well again HD is the high density card, but it's a higher density card than H, HD, and so it is the next generation. You will go from 32 gigs to 64 gigs, or up to two terabyte in these in the solid state cards, basically that you're using for your cameras. And all of the cameras, almost every single camera that's currently on the shelf at Best Buy or you know Wolf Camera, anything supports SDXE. If you just look, it'll say SDXE on it. But no one really knows what it is, or no one that I've talked to, even at some of the camera stores where they're selling them, have a clue what it is or what it's for. And uh, they think it's just like the SDHC cards. Well, SDHC cards are formatted FAT32. So when you're using them, you can use them in any platform that you want. You could use them in a, an Android. You can use them in a camera. You could format it on the camera, put it in your computer, read your pictures off. It's a universal uh, FAT32, which right. most, most people know is owned by Microsoft. Microsoft actually owns the patents for FAT32. Great. Um, and most Linux platforms have kind of reverse engineered it, made it work on Linux, but then sometimes Microsoft goes back and then sues them for it, and so on and so on. So anyway, to continue my story, um, SDXC cards are not FAT32. They are the next generation of FAT, which is called XFAT, which is FAT64. So XFAT actually came out, it was actually in the original Windows CE phones that were back in uh, (laughs) 2006. It was developed for them because they were solid-state. And so solid state would die, so they came up with a new file system that would be more performance-driven that would stop them from dying. And so they developed SD, uh, or I'm sorry, XFAT for those phones. Well, we never u- really used it. I mean, it was I guess it was used maybe for some embedded platforms, but it was never really used as a publicly available file system. And Vista, in Service Pack 1, it wasn't even released with Vista. It was released in Service Pack 1. They added the XFAT file system so that you could format a memory stick or something like that as XFAT. But everybody pretty much considered it a loser. Even even <laughs> teaching or doing any kind of discussion anywhere or even in forensics classes, everybody pretty much says, well, you may run across this, but it's pretty rare. Nobody really uses it. It's a piece of crap. And so we don't want a new file system, so kick it to the curb, and nobody's used it. And so it's been that way for, for years. Well, in 2009, 
Microsoft convinced the SD Card Association, the people who make the decisions about what's going to be on your SD card, either I don't know if they bought them out or if they just convinced them, whatever, I don't know. <laughs> you know, because Windows can only format a FAT32 disk up to 32 gigs. After 32 gigs, you have to go to either NTFS or something else, which would now be uh, XFAT. And so they convinced the SD Card Association in 2009. They said, well, look, if you want to have a larger card, you know, we've got the next because you've been using FAT all along. Nobody's got anything else. Why don't you use our XFAT, FAT64, and make that the standard? And every card manufacturer from here on out will have to do XFAT. And they will have to pay us a licensing fee. And they will have to pay you a licensing fee because they have to pay the SD Card Association a licensing fee. Then they have to pay for their format, for their layout, for handling the, the system. Then they'll have to pay Microsoft for the XFAT file system to be able to use it. Jeez. So so it was kind of like one of these you know cataclysmic things that happened all at once. Everybody um, kind of got on board with this. But no one kind of really knew about it. There was no cards. Nothing's been out. Um, and so I started seeing cards while I was in Australia. So finally, there's SDXC cards, and you're starting to see them now because uh, okay. now it's six months later. You're starting to see them at the store, just barely, like they're you know 64 gig cards or something coming out. But by the standard the SD Card Association has set up, there should not be an SDHC card that goes up to 64 gigs. It should stop at 32 gigs, because understand there was no reason that we could not format something greater than 32 gigs other than Microsoft said, no, you can't put this in our computer and format at 32, you know, greater than 32 gigs. You get in the Literally, picture? There's no hardware like limit. It's just a Microsoft limit. Yeah. It's a, it's a Microsoft software limit that they imposed when windows 2000 came out when they said it's inefficient to use fat 32 above 32 gigs. But back then we didn't have memory sticks that were that large. It was all hard drives. And so, you know, then as you're progressing down this line, when they created XFAT, XFAT is not actually technically a bootable file system. It's an embedded file system or it's used for devices. Um, and so I guess by the time 2009 rolled around, they said, well, what are we going to do with this? Well, let's force this down the throat of, you know, every camera manufacturer in the world. So what ends up happening is every camera manufacturer supports SDXC has to pay Microsoft a $300,000 licensing fee. So, see, we're in the wrong business, man. We'd just be like, <laughs> we can just make up some crap and then throw it out there and force everybody to use it, and then they'd have to pay us royalties and licensing fees. And, wow. And, I mean, they don't even implement it or anything. You still have to do all the work yourself. All you've got to do is, for the intellectual property, pay them $300,000 licensing fee. And so, uh, but there has been some things that are, that are different about it. Like, you know, in theory, the idea was, okay, fine, we could not format FAT32 cards greater than 32 gigs because Windows wouldn't let us. But you cannot format these XFAT cards in Windows. You can read them, but you can't format them in Windows uh, because it will screw up the layout, the layout of the, of the card in the camera. You actually have to format them in the camera. You cannot for format them in a computer. You can read them in a computer, but the camera will not work correctly if you really? format them in the computer. Yeah, I've been doing a lot of testing, 
And, uh, you know, we have different partition structure layouts and stuff like this. There's a whole bunch of things that are actually happening. But the layout and the format and how the fundamentals work for an SDXC card is completely different than what you would expect for it to be able to be used in a computer with a computer at the same time. So uh, it's a bastardized process for them to get licensing fees. But here's where and, – and I'm doing a speech on this. I'm submitting it to ShmooCon. So in January, uh, hopefully I'll be speaking at ShmooCon. I technically, I'm already accepted, I think. Um, but the whole point that I'm trying to get to is that because Windows, Windows 7 – and they went backwards, you know, even though they said they were going to update Windows XP, they have updated Windows XP to allow it to communicate with SDXC cards. This way, anybody who bought a camera who uses an SDXC card that formats it as uh, XFAT can put it in Windows XP and look at their pictures or edit their pictures or do whatever. And so they have modified all versions of Windows so that they will, or all versions back to 2000, so that you'll be able to use those in your card, uh, use them with your card to read your pictures. And then in 2010, Macs had the same problem, right? They, so they're starting to come out with cards. You know that Macs' primary uh, you know, field of interest is photography and graphic design and things like that. So in, two, in November of 2010, they added a patch to all of the Apples. So that, you know, again, Apple is paying, in case most people don't realize this, Apple is paying Microsoft a lot of money for a lot of their license technology. Uh, their exchange server components so they can use it with iPhones, uh, their server components so they can actually use mobile me. Those are all exchange server components. Um, so there's a lot of there's a lot of money changing hands here, but uh, Apple actually paid Microsoft a licensing fee to be able to use Xfat in uh, not only in boot camp because those are also drivers that have to talk back and forth between Windows when you're in boot camp and Mac OS, but also in Mac OS. If you actually go to format a disk now in Mac OS, if you use disk utility and you go look, you'll see one of the choices now is XFAT. Really? Yes, it's been in there since November of 2010. And so all of the operating systems, all the releases that they've had since then had the file system added to them since November of 2010. Now, the, uh, so again, licensing fees are being paid. So as you might... Progress along the same lines here. Which operating system is the one that's left out? Linux. Linux is left out, right? Microsoft has patented the crap out of XFAT so that Linux cannot even, even though they might be able to physically reverse engineer and figure out how to use XFAT, legally they will have all kinds of binds that will keep them from using XFAT without paying mm. a li licensing fee. So if you now, now if you go along these lines and you think of this, that means let's say your tablet, you have an Android tablet, and the way that you extend memory or physical disk space in an Android tablet is putting in an SD card. Mm -hmm. So so most people will want the largest that they're capable of having. So you'll want a 128 gig one if you can get one. Well, those will all come pre-formatted SD like XCXE cards. They will all come pre-formatted as a uh, XFAT card. So what's going to happen, you think? Well, uh, so the guys who wrote the driver, you know the uh, 3G driver for doing NTFS uh, that um, Tuxera has written? You, you know about those guys, right? In the no. Linux. So, so in the Linux world, there's a compatibility driver that the Tuxera people have written to 
that you have to pay a small fee to use uh, so that you can do NTFS in read-write mode, blah, blah, blah. And it's part of the, you know, the same source code that started as a part of the 3G driver that was released uh, in Fuse. So anyway, so, so those guys have paid Microsoft a licensing fee. So they have now gone back and written source code, and they say that, fine, if you're using Android and you want to use this driver, then you have to pay the SD Card Association, you have to pay us, Tuxera, and you have to pay the $300,000 Microsoft license fee. So now there's going to be multiple license fees that Linux will have to pay or Android <laughs> will have to pay in order to use these cards. Now, you know, just to be clear, too, iPads currently don't support this. Uh, this either. There's actually, it requires a new card reader, and those little card reader kits that come with the iPad, they do not work with SDXE cards. There's going to have to be a new update for those to work, and they will have to update the iPad to be able to read, because right now the iPad just reads uh, FAT32, and so it does not read uh, from those memory cards or anything like that, the XFAT file system. So even though Apple has paid them a licensing fee, they paid it for their volume license fees for the Mac, but they did not pay them for the iPad, because that's going to be another $300,000. Oh, my God. So it, it's inevitable. Everything's going to XFAT, right? Because Microsoft kind of pushed it down their throat. Yeah, uh, everything. Now, uh, there are a lot of good things about XFAT that will make the solid-state drives live longer, and you know it is optimized for, for solid-state drives, and so there actually might be some real good performance increase stuff there. But, but in theory, though, here's my real problem was, okay, so... You know, camera manufacturers, if if all they had to do was allow FAT32 to format up to 64 gigs, then there would be no licensing fees. There would be no more licensing fees than what was already being paid. And it would work with every operating system that's out there because we have no restrictions on reading and writing to those. We have a restriction in Windows on formatting it. Format Windows can read a 64 gig FAT32 card just fine. It cannot format it as wow. that size. So we're only talking about one limitation that Microsoft implemented for Windows, which unfortunately they're the designer of FAT32. So that's really kind of the downside. But when you're looking at that, it just seems like, you know, this is all about a money grab, right? Is it more advanced? Sure. Is it better for the future? Yeah, probably. Is it, could we have done it? We, we could have done it without it. We didn't need to pay all these additional fees. But, you know, SD cards, maybe they are inefficient if you're formatting them at 64 gigs or 128 gigs. Maybe they're a little bit more inefficient, but for a $300 licensing fee and for compatibility across all OSs, would it have been a better choice? Uh, I don't know. It's really kind of like, you know, because Apple doesn't care. They're, they're, they got buttloads of cash, right? Uh, Microsoft got buttloads of cash. Both of them are in great shape. It's Linux and the embedded world where we're trying to get by for free. You know, this isn't going to hurt like Red Hat or anybody like that. It's going to hurt, you know, uh, Ubuntu, somebody who's, you know, living on the edge, maybe not making a lot of money unless they're in the corporate world or something along those lines. So, or the, you know, the Gentoos, the people who've got to put it together and don't have the money to pay for a license or don't want to pay for a license. Uh, you know, it's the I'm going to live in the open source world. You won't be able to anymore. You won't be able to use your Android tablet and you know thumb your nose up at Microsoft. Uh, not that you can't now anyway. Most people just don't realize that you know HTC and Samsung and everybody else is paying them anyway. Uh, right. So right. so so they're already paying their part 
for that. But uh, you know, the days of free are numbered or over as we expand, and 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 gradually it will happen that way. Just like people are buying 32 gig SDHC cards now, they're going to buy 64 gig or 128. The the one real downside that I look at it and I say, well, you know, uh, we've had a partition limit. You know, our partition limit for FAT32 is two terabytes. It's always been two terabytes because you you we use an MBR, so our master boot record points to, uh, and the size that it points to for our partition records is physically limited to two terabytes because of how high it can count. Okay. Well. Uh, we have a method of getting around that, which we've been moving to, not only with Macs, but with Windows 64-bit and some of the new uh, the new BIOSes that have been replaced out there, like the UEFI BIOSes. We were able to use GPT partition structures, so the uh, Global Unique Identifier Partition Structure, which allows us to have you know uh, you know up to 128 petabytes or something like that at this point. So we can have a much larger partition than two terabytes, but this process that Microsoft has done, they couldn't license GPT to camera manufacturers. It would take not only a lot of work, but they didn't own the license for GPT, which allowed us to have bigger than two terabyte. Intel owned that license. And so from that standpoint, Microsoft went and bastardized the MBR and made it so that, again, we're stuck at two terabytes. Even though that might not currently be a problem for camera manufacturers, it will at some point in time be a problem we will be beyond two terabytes, and we're going to have to do this again. There's going to have to be a whole nother license and a whole nother change that's going to have to oh, take place. <laughs> that's crazy. And and that's probably you just want to punch Microsoft. Well, you know, and and I understand being a company and wanting to make money and whatever else, but it just kind of looks like almost like a blatant, you know, screw you to to Len- like right now. And most people I know over the last six months have started to format their memory sticks as XFAT. Because they can use them, you can get past your four. Uh, you know, if you're trying to copy a, a CD or something or a DVD, you have a, a four gig limit before you can't put it on a FAT32 drive. So if you use XFAT, you don't have that limit. So I can copy a DVD onto an XFAT drive or a backup or something like that onto XFAT and not have a problem. And since I can use it on a Mac and I can use it on Windows, it covers you know you know, 90% or 95% of the OSs I use. So a lot of people I know are now formatting their memory sticks because I have like a 128 gig memory stick um, that I use on a day-to-day basis. You can format it as XFAT and copy all your files to it. But that leaves out Linux. Like, I, you know, if I now hand it to a guy who has a Linux machine, he can't copy files off of it. Wow. That's going to piss off some people I know. <laughs> yeah, especially all your Linux, crazy, man. your Linux user group. Yeah, I mean, now you can go and have this battle, this talk with the Linux, because uh, that's another podcast you have, isn't it? Yeah, Linux so, for the rest of us. Yes, so now you can have this discussion with people about, did you know this licensing fee that you're about to have to pay for? Oh, no, he's he, Dor, the guy I do uh, Linux for the rest of us with, he's going to hear this, and he's going to flip out. If he didn't, he probably already knows this already. But um, I don't think not, a lot of people know this. Even more. The reason I think a lot of people don't know this is because we're just now getting in this country greater than 32 gig cards. We really haven't had them. It, it, you know, For a camera, really, if you think about it, a camera, even if you get the highest end megapixel camera that is out there, like I think uh, Canon or somebody's got like a 38 megapixel now. I mean, you're still talking about a small file. You're not talking about 
you know, 128 gig file. You're talking about, you know, uh, what, a 23 meg file that would be taken in raw. So gotcha. when you're looking at that, you're still not looking at anywhere near the capacity or the limits. So if you could have formatted it FAT32, we'd still been fine because it would be contiguous space. You'd lose a little bit of the cluster. So you'd lose, you know, maybe half a meg at most in overlap for a picture. So this isn't a problem for existing cameras. It's a problem for something like a camcorder where we right. might want to exceed you know, the amount of space or take a large picture, which, by the way, I don't know if you or maybe the listeners knew this. Um, you know the camera, like if you go buy a, 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 you know, a Nikon camera mm-hmm. and you know, let's say a D90 or something like that, do you know what the difference between that and a camcorder is? No. I mean, because you, you know, normally, at least fundamentally, you are not supposed to be able to take a movie. You you are not supposed to be able to make a full movie with, that, say, a Nikon D90 camera versus right. a camcorder. You're supposed to use a camcorder to make a full movie, and that you can record for you know 10 hours at a time or whatever. Right. Right. Whereas on a Nikon or a Canon or any of those others, they all stop at 29 minutes and 55 seconds. They cannot record longer. And some of them, you know, cut it even shorter than that. Some of them will quit after like uh, 10 minutes or 12 minutes. It has to do with the file size limit. But uh, the reason that one of those cameras cannot take that video is because in the UK, there is a tax. It is 14% tax on anything that can record longer than 30 minutes of video. <laughs> so the camera manufacturers have cut off their limitations so they did not have to pay the 14% tax. So, you know, if you had a $3,000 camera, 14% can be uh, quite a bit stifling uh, if you're going to go and try to export or import or do anything with it. Whereas it's amazing. A, yeah. A low-end camcorder at six, you know, $600 or something like that, 14% still isn't much by comparison. And so, but that's actually a limitation that they have an actual EU tax that says if you record more than 30 minutes, you are a camcorder, and therefore you are a 14% tax. If you record less than that, you can be a camera, and you do not have to pay the tax. That's amazing. Wow, this is disturbing. Some of the stuff you're telling me. Yeah, it's you know people have to go look it up, and you'll see. It's like it's ridiculous that that's that's kind of the limitation that actually makes these things. People were always like you know because as I was doing research and I'm starting to deal with cameras a lot because of SDXE cards. There was a lot of these kind of myths that kind of went around with, you know, oh, we'll overheat the sensor or it will do that. Like, who cares? I mean, you're at, if you're making a video, you know, you're going to live within the means of whatever it is. So you can do a much better job at higher definition. But the limitation is fundamentally due to a tax, not due to a physical limitation of the camera. I didn't know that. That's crazy. This is good stuff you bring into this, this show, Scott. Yeah, well, this is, again, it all has to do back with storage because it all has to do with, you know, like, for instance, camera manufacturers, they don't need to be able to store one large file, like a 4-gig file or 5-gig file. So they don't need to store a large file to exceed the FAT32 limitations because years ago, they already solved this problem. They just they already just chopped the file up into pieces and then have a master file that says, okay, weave uh-huh. these back together. Right, you've seen this before, where when you're editing video, they'll be chopped up into two gig pieces. Yes. So it's completely irrelevant to them that we need FAT32 or FAT64. They'd have been fine with FAT32 all this time, because we, we don't really have a camera, or currently at least uh, the standard cameras that are on the shelf don't exceed two terabytes. 
most of them are like 220 gigs with high compression that stores 56 right. hours of video. You know, nobody cared that we had to pay Microsoft another $300,000 licensing fee and increase the, increase the cost of our camera. That's lame. It's so lame, but thank you for, you know, making us aware of what's going on. Well, I just want to hear your Linux people like, oh, screw that. <laughs> screw Microsoft. So, They're going to hate it. They're going to hate it. They're going to become enraged. Well, it, we'll see. and I'm still, you know, wondering the effect, you know, like I said, if, if it's somebody like Red Hat, they're just going to pay it. Who cares? You right. know, if it's, uh, you know, Novell or somebody, you know, they'll just pay it. But, you know, what about Ubuntu? I mean, are, is there, are they making enough money? Can they afford it? Does it really matter? I mean, is they, uh, Ubuntu might, but maybe some of the other distros not. Right. I mean, I think, cause you know, again, we're back to the difference between a hard drive and solid-state disk or solid-state memory card, it's really going to matter more to Android users, right? It'll matter more for portability of, I've got, well, I want to take my tablet and, you know, my Nexus, and I want to use my Nexus with a uh, with a 128-gig memory card. Absolutely. What, and so so that's where the impact's going to be, but then you're talking about, well, you got a manufacturer like Google or, you know, HTC, you know, it's just three hundred thousand dollars to them. It's nothing. We're just one right. more cost. You know, I already have paid the FCC, you know, communication costs to get this thing out there anyway. This is right. just this is nothing. So you know, maybe nobody notices. We'll find out. We definitely, we'll, we'll it'll we'll be hearing about it if it gets major. But I mean, if it starts to be a problem anyway. But it's just interesting, man. That's good stuff. Now, believe it or not, I have emails. These are. <laughs> Okay, that's cool. <laughs> you want to read a couple emails here? Yeah, let's do it. It's awesome. Okay, this email is from April 12th, 2011. He says, Hey guys, in a previous episode, Scott mentioned that Windows 7 is aware when an SSD hard drive is being used, therefore won't defrag, extending the life of the hard drive. I have a MacBook Air running Windows 7 via VMware Fusion. Will Windows OS still be aware of the SSD drive? What about a boot camp installation of Windows 7 on the MacBook Air? Is there a way we can check to make sure that make sure Windows detects the SSD? Lastly, does OS 10 do any defragging on its own? Thanks much and sorry for all the questions. That's from Omar. What do you say, Scott? So, uh, one of the things is with uh, with VMware. Now, VMware actually makes a fake hard drive, so it's not actually talking directly through ATA commands to the local hard drive. It is talking to a fake built-in hard drive. So it will probably not be aware at all that there's actually a solid-state drive there because it is not It is not actually technically talking to a solid-state drive. I see. Um, now, uh, now, as far as Macs go, Mac OS in Snow Leopard, they did update to be what's called TRIM aware, T-R-I-M. It do, it's not an acronym. It doesn't... It doesn't stand for anything. It just is a ATA command that Microsoft had asked, and so asked for physically from the ATA command committee. And so what it does is uh, it makes a request to the drive and says, hey, are you a solid-state drive? And if you are, then inside my operating system, I will make physical changes to make sure that I'm not doing things. This is one of those lines where it blurs between what's a file system and what's an operating system. I see. Normally... When we're talking about hard drives, we're talking about file systems, and the action that's taken on the file system has very little to do with the operating system that's running on it. But this is one of those situations where trim 
uh, and the being aware that it is a solid state drive does take action inside the operating system, and the operating system actually will make different changes depending on files being deleted and space and things like that. Um, and so in Windows, if you wanted to know, there is a command, and it's uh, part of the fsutil commands. You can actually say uh, fsutil behavior query uh something like disable delete notify or something if you if you ask it and if you, you might just google the the command or something really quick and it'll tell you the layout and what you actually got to do but you can actually tell it you know test and see if it's on or turn or turn it off so you can actually physically set it or you can query it and so hmm. it'll just send back a zero or a one to indicate trim is on or trim is off and that means if trim is on then you have a solid state drive so when boot camp is running boot camp if the solid-state drive that the Apple manufacturer used, which uh, most of the time is either Samsung or Toshiba, those it should be uh, trim-aware on any of the newer models since, say, 2010 or 2011. Okay. So, uh, so just query that command for FSUtil behavior query, and it'll tell you what to do. And you can, in boot camp, check and see if it's on or off. In Mac OS, if you actually go to the About This Computer and do the standard stuff where it gives you all your hardware. One of the items under the hard drive will be <clears throat> will be is trim active, and it'll say trim aware or something like that. Um, we're not really sure all the functions that Macs have disabled. Like we don't know that they've turned off all the functions like Windows 7 has. Windows 7 is very aware of what's going on with solid state, whereas uh, Apple, we're not quite so sure that they've made those changes. Uh, huh. No kidding. They really aren't telling us what they've made changes to because that's the other thing is the iPhone is HFS. So it's uh, <clears throat> it's the same basic layout as what happens in a Mac. We don't know if they're actually actively doing something in the iPhone to make them live longer. I see. <laughs> Interesting. Well, I'm sure Omar appreciates the answer. And sorry it took so long, Omar, over yeah. a year. Oh, a year. How about that? <laughs> <laughs> Next one is from Kenneth. Or Kenny. He says, hi, lads. When Scott talks about solid-state drives, is he talking about solid-state hard drives or just USB sticks, pen drives that you connect externally via USB? Thanks. Really enjoy the show. It's from Kenny. So, uh, and this is probably a year-old one too, right? <laughs> he probably already knows. Uh, so, when I'm talking about solid-state drives, normally what we're talking about is inside your computer that you actually have a hard drive, a disk, well, the, there's only really one fundamental difference between a thumb drive and a solid-state drive. They're both solid-state drives, actually. They're both, they both have no moving parts. That's really right. what defines a solid-state drive. But it's been kind of bastardized over the last two or three years since they've been uh, becoming so prolific out there. And so when we say an SSD drive now, what we mean is it has a processor. And the processor will emulate what a regular hard drive does. So it will okay. say... I am a hard drive. You do not need a driver to talk to me. You can just use me as if I was a hard drive, and it will just emulate that function. Whereas a solid-state thumb drive, it actually uses a driver. When you plug it in, it starts up a driver. There's a driver in your operating system talking to it, and it has to know about it in order to be aware that it's there. And it doesn't have a processor in the same way that a solid-state drive does, where it, it, and again, bastardized the name here. So, you know, I hate to, you know... They're both solid-state drives, but I just hate right. that that's kind of the way it's gone in, down this path. But hopefully that answers your question. It's uh, I'm usually talking about 
something that's going to be on the chain and it's going to pretend and emulate a actual ATA command from a hard drive, whereas your solid state disks, your thumb drives, don't. Yeah, that to- that totally answers the question. That's good info. I didn't even know that either. Um, that they had processors, you know, and, and they were emulating. That's pretty cool. Um, next one is from Roger. He says, on episode 15, you talked about the secure erase command, and I have a couple questions relating to that. Number one, is smart data, that's SMRT, S-M-A-R-T, the acronym, is smart data reliable for determining if a drive has no bad blocks? For instance, if smart says a drive has zero allocated sectors, then is it safe to wipe a drive with any of the available disk uh, drive erasing programs and skip using sec- the secure erase utility? Um, and number two, how hard is it to recover data from the bad block area? Can this be done with software? Thanks from Roger. Okay, so the first question, which had to do with SMART, which is self-monitoring analysis reporting technology. So that is actually like an add-on to the drive. IBM created it. It's uh, it's was supposed to be to inform you as to the status of your drive because we currently have no way to talk to these tables that our drive stores. There's a lot going on inside the drive, and it has multiple tables which say things like the health of the drive and what's actually going on with it. So they created this to add on a feature so that we could query some, a a small piece of these tables to say, well, what condition are you in? And so it was supposed to be a preemptive strike. So you could say, look, my drive is starting to go bad. I'm starting to have problems. So therefore, I can say I need to replace it or do a backup prior to some horrible thing happening and me losing all my data. And so that's what the smart table fundamentally is, is a small subset of these commands. And there is one for the bad block table. Now, there's more than one bad block table. But the one that we care about is the one that this one reports, which is called the G list. So it's called the grown list, G-R-O-W-N. And so this list grows as we use the hard drive uh, as opposed to what happens during manufacturing processes, which are the P list, where there's a primary list or a permanent list where things that don't have data are taken out of use. So the G list is as we are using the drive, we are writing to a sector, there is data written there, then it says, oh, look, I compared that to error correcting code, and it said it was bad. And so I need to move to a new location, and it will create in this table a uh, one additional block and it'll have a new location which will be a hidden area on the drive in the system area where the data goes so when it says zero in theory unless the manufacturer has done some tricks which sometimes they do uh, if the number says zero then you should have no bad blocks in your grown list they should be completely blank so it is possible then at that point in time that the original blank space where where you know there because there is no bad blocks you could just write or overwrite the space and you would be fine Uh, so you should be safe if it says zero uh, because there should not be any redirected blocks technically Um, uh, i can't testify that it's always true because these manufacturers do play a lot of games with the code (laughs) and what's going on but in theory it should be fine And then the second part of your question, which was, well, how hard is it to get that data off? Um, There are three tools in the world that are basically firmware tools. And these three tools can clear the, the list that tells it to redirect. And then we can copy them. So if you have one of these three tools 
the cheapest one being about $3,500, the most expensive uh, being about $7,000. Um, if you have any one of these three tools, we can read those blocks with no trouble at all. So, so that's the only defining characteristic here is that if you're doing data recovery, you have one of these tools. If you're FBI or CIA, you've got one of these tools. If what are the tools? Um, one of the first ones, the, the biggest and most robust one, is called the PC-3000. So the PC-3000 is created by a company called uh, ACE Laboratories, and they're out of Russia. And it is the most robust and the oldest existing tool that allows you to modify firmware on a drive. They reverse engineered most of the drives that are out there. And you can fix, repair, and do things. So you can clear these tables or talk to these tables. And uh, and almost every data recovery company is going to have one that's, uh, that's doing any kind of firmware repair. Uh, one of the second ones is called Natola. Uh, Tola Insight, which is also made in Russia. And it's not quite as robust and not quite as good at allowing you to modify these tables. But under certain circumstances, it may do the job. And then the third, uh, which is probably a more robust tool set than the Atola, at least for doing this particular job. Uh, again, they don't do exactly the same thing. But there is a tool set that's made by a Chinese company called Salvation Data. And Salvation Data makes a suite that's called the HD Doctor Set. And it's about $3,500, and it is specifically for modifying the firmware in a drive so you can do these functions. Gotcha. Wow. Good stuff, man. Anytime. <laughs> Last one is an email from Blaine, and he's referencing a thread in the Podnuts forums, and he says, question for Scott. I think he says that. Where does he say that? <laughs> anyway, they... He wants to know the ethics slash legality of the following thread. And there's a thread in the Podnuts forums called Backing Up Data Without Consent. And let me just make sure I got the right thread here. So this is from Blaine. He says, question for Scott Moulton. The ethics and legalities of holding customer data after repair as discussed in this thread. And now the first post of this thread is, is it legal? This is from Mr. Tech Pants. He posted this in the Podnuts forums. He says, "Is it legal for to, is it legal to make backup images of customer hard drives without them consenting? Say I want to back up a drive in case I mess something up, then I can restore it to the way it was. On my invoices, I have the customer consent to backing up or cloning the software on a computer in order to protect the data. But is it necessary to be there? I don't want to scare people away with this, so I don't want it there if it doesn't have to be there." What do you think, Scott? Well, all right. So, and this crosses over into my forensic side where, I mean, because I actually deal with both criminal and civil cases. I deal a lot with lawyers and things like that. But I do want to preface this by I am not a lawyer. I'm not your lawyer. Go get your own lawyer. And if you really have a real problem with it, you have to, you know, you may need to seek counsel. However, what I would say, and looking at it from a data recovery perspective, um, it, it all is about your contract or what your license agreement is. So, you know, technically, when I have customer's data, I am I am currently also bound by the private investigator laws. I am an agent of yours in Georgia. So when someone sends me stuff, I'm not going to do anything with your data. I'm keeping your data only specifically as protection for you, just pretty much similar to what you've outlined there. But when someone sends a drive-in for data recovery... I'm going to try to keep their data, especially during a cycle of shipping. 
So in other words, you send a drive in, I repair it, I got the data off of it, I've made a copy of it, and now you've paid me, I'm shipping it back to you. And so during the process of it shipping back to you, I'm probably shipping your original hard drive back and your newly purchased hard drive with the data on it. Something can happen to it on the way that it's shipping back to you. So I normally keep client data for two weeks. So I will confirm that there will be client data that will be stored for two weeks. And if something bad happens, then at least we've got this data and they have two weeks to go, hey, you know, I didn't get your box. However, what I'm hearing from your side is things like I've got your customer invoices. Well, part of your problem and part of why I say you might need a lawyer depends on what these invoices are for. So, for instance, you may have other laws in your state that you have to comply with. So if they're like HIPAA or Sarbanes-Oxley or something along those lines where you're storing data that's based on medical records or financial records or something like that for a client as a backup because you've written some software or something like that and you're storing them for them, you might have some liability there that legally might cost you something. So you might really want to examine that and at least figure out what is your liability or is this a valuable asset for you or, or do it as a service so that they're paying for it and you have a contract for it so you can actually say, well, I did this as part of this contract rather than just blindly doing it. And right. you know, I'm sure that they'd be appreciative if their system crashed that you had a copy of it or at least you know, they will blame you. Oh, look, why don't you have a copy of it? But at least if you've got it outlined in a contract or you're getting paid for that service – then it makes more sense. It may even become a service that's more valuable to you than your primary service, depending on how much money is involved with it uh, and a number of clients. But I would say from a legal standpoint, I'd have to set up a separate service and I would have to probably approach it that way. And then you need to make sure, because you know, if it's a brokerage firm or you know, a psychologist's office or something like that, you, you need to be very cautious about the type of data that you're storing for them and whether or not there's credit card numbers involved and you know that's a whole nother you know thing that's going to happen with visa where visa may sue you if you're storing credit card numbers right you just need to you just need to double check with those kind of things this is you know and 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 this might be something that would be really cool in the future to do it's like a forensics podcast where we're actually talking about these things where i've you know got experience in cases and things that i've dealt with before that would almost be like a really cool podcast all on its own to kind I of agree. go in a different direction with because that's a completely different type of question. And I do deal with a lot of forensics cases where you know, I've got to train lawyers and we've got to go through these question and answer sessions and things like this to figure out, you know, is this a deleted file? What is a deleted file? How are we dealing with this? Um, and it's completely different than just, oh, look, I've got a hard drive and I'm recovering some data from it. Wow. Yeah, you know – he says he has it in, um, I guess, the customer agreement, but he's wondering if he wants to take it out. So if he does take it out, that would probably not be a good idea. But like you're saying, make it part of a separate service and its own contract, you can I, make money I, off it. I definitely think that you know, if you define it as a, de- as a separate service, then you're saying, look, client, um, this legally might be a problem for me to maintain this data. And so I need to make sure that we're doing proper resources where, you know, you might in certain states, you've got to encrypt the data that you're storing as well. So if it does have, you know, some HIPAA and you're in Massachusetts or something like that, you may have to encrypt this data. And so it may become a very big hassle for you. So you want to make sure you're getting paid for these things. So, you know, I wouldn't just arbitrarily do certain things for a client uh, without defining this and, 
if you do have it in your contract, and that's 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 probably perfectly fine. But I probably would also make sure I know what kind of contact. I mean, you've got yeah. one other aspect that I really kind of didn't want to go too far into, but you know, let's us you know, and I know it's invoices or whatever else, whatever you're backing up. But let's assume that you're backing up and doing a service for a company, and one of the salespeople at the company looked at child porn, and now you've got a backup of that on your system. Now you've got a whole different uh, yeah. problem that you may actually have some legal issues with. I see. Cool. Good, Scott. Thank you very much for answering all those emails. Um, that's going to be it for the show. So uh, is there anything uh, you wanted to say to the folks before we end it off, Scott? The only thing I'd say is that, um, well, one is obviously I'm teaching classes. So if you're interested in this type of content we just talked about, I have another 55 hours of material just like this, that I will teach you, and we do hands-on labs, and we go through the entire process of rebuilding drives, and I actually go through even the forensic side of how to take apart the data and what we're actually looking at in the data to reassemble it. So if you're interested in this, go to myharddrivedive.com, just like it's spelled, and look at the any of the stuff that says any of the classes, or I also have a lot of presentations. I mean, there's another 90 or you know so hours out there of podcasts and material I've released. So if you're interested in it, feel free to use any of my resources there, and there's plenty to read. It's no fluff or anything like that. It's all in-depth material like this. And then the second thing I'd say is whoever buys this podcast, make sure they contact me. I'll be happy to keep going, and maybe we can make a new forensics podcast or something, you know, since... Since at least at this point, Steve's going to be a sellout. He's going to move on. So, <laughs> <laughs> damn, Scott, Scott just got excited about that forensics podcast mid-show. Maybe. I think it's a great idea. I actually do, and I I, I want all the podnut shows that kind of I, I let fade a little bit. I want them to come back, and I've talked to people that want them to come back. So I know there's an interest there. Yeah. And like Scott said, you get to do a podcast with him. What can be better? It's priceless. And and seriously, a forensics podcast where we discussed, you know, these things, the legalities or the different stuff, again, not being a lawyer, but looking at it from the perspective of cases. I mean, I've done a thousand cases at this point. It might actually be something where, you know, that's thought provoking. There's a lot of strategy actually involved in working on cases and dealing with criminal sides and things like that. And it may be very interesting. I'd be happy to do one. I agree. I think it'd be a great show. Great idea for a show. Well, we'll see what happens with that. Maybe we'll, I'll talk to Scott after the show about that. And uh, everybody who's tuning in, downloading, watching, it's much appreciated. Hope you enjoyed this week's show, or this year's show. <laughs> and we'll see you next time. Thanks. Music from My Hard Drive Died, brought to you by Evan King at purevolume.com slash Evan King.